6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Well, we are exploring, reviewing the epistle to the Hebrews. We're in the 13th session that's addressing chapter 12 of this epistle. Now, just by way of quick summary, the first seven chapters present Jesus Christ as the new and better deliverer. The entire epistle is being addressed to Jewish Christians and it, the writer does not assert any authority. They knew who he was, but he's building the entire case and his proposition on the scriptures that they held dear, namely the Old Testament. But from that background, it presents Jesus as the new and better deliverer, better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than, and primarily a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not, Le, not uh, Levi. And, and uh, that's the first seven chapters. And he does this by having a better covenant, a better sanctuary, and a better sacrifice than that which they were used to. And that's chapters 7 through 10, if you will. And that's considered the theological section of the epistle. And the last few chapters are what might be called practical applications. Littered through this are five warnings. And those five warnings are crucial to understand. They build on each other. And the thing to, that's essential to understand this entire study is to understand that these are people that are saved. The writer, which we convinced beyond a reasonable doubt, is Paul, always says, let us, let us, let us. Whatever they are, they're in the same category he is. They're clearly saved. Their justification before the throne of God is not an issue. That has been taken care of 100% by Jesus Christ and is taken for granted all through here. What is the issue is sanctification, progressing from that. Gee, you're saved. You accept Jesus Christ. That gets you on first base. How are you doing? Sanctification is a work in progress. Last time we were in chapter 11, a, a pinnacle of sorts, in terms of the hall of faith, as it's sometimes called. We'll review that quickly as we go forward now into the to chapter 12, which includes the fifth of these five warnings. So, a couple of summary things just to get us warmed up here. Charles Spurgeon said, It is not thy hold on Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not even thy faith in Christ that saves thee, though that be the instrument it's Christ's blood and merit. And that's crucial to understand. There's a lot of misunderstanding. Oh, you've got to have faith. What does that mean? Faith in what? No, it's Christ's blood is the issue. Now, your faith in that blood is what saves you. Faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as the present and the invisible as seen. I love that by Dr. Sanders. 
And Hebrews 11 opened up with a couple of verses that are pivotal to the Christian walk. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The word substance is hypostasis. It's just the opposite of hypothesis. Just, it's, a, it's one that's proved. It's an exact reproduction. It, it's equivalent to assurance. And the meaning is substance that gives real existence. And it was used on ancient documents as evidence of title deeds and so forth that made them authentic. And it's the real essence of something. And as a scientific term, that, that same word is the opposite of hypothesis, which is a tentative suggestion. Okay, just the opposite. It's the evidence of things not seen, elekos. It's a legal term, meaning evidence that is accepted for conviction. So it's a very strong legal term. It's a commitment to certainty. As a noun, it's only used twice here in, his, in Paul's second letter to Timothy. And uh, the person of faith lives out that belief. The entire business world, by the way, relies on faith. Your use of a credit card or writing a check causes people to trust that document, that they have faith that that will be made good. So faith is not unique to the religious world, but faith is, is, is something that is, is, it's a function of trusting something as being true. And by it, the elders obtained a good report. And the elders here are the Old Testament saints that are going to be listed in the rest of that chapter, chapter 11. They exercise faith, and um, to depart from faith is to depart from the Old Testament saints. That argument is being made because you're writing, you're writing here to people who were Jewish believers. They had trust in their Old Testament. And, and so the, it, it's the faith of those Old Testament uh, saints that they're dealing with here. So the Old Testament saints won their battle through of patient endurance, and these believers, the listeners, the readers to this epistle, had to win the same battle the same way. That's the point the writer's going to make here. And he's echoing an admission back in chapter 6 in Hebrews that you be not sluggish, but be imitators of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The issue here is not entering heaven. They take it for granted. It's inheriting heaven. Big difference. Big difference. And that's going to be hammered all the way through here. And then we get to one of my favorite verses in, in last time. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. And the Word there is spoken word. The spoken word. Rima, spoken word. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. God said in Genesis chapter 1, it says, God said ten times. And it's interesting. So the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. So we talked a little bit uh, about Nachmanides, who from his study, back in the 13th century, from his study of Genesis chapter 1, he concluded that the universe has ten dimensions, only four are knowable. And that's really commendable today because our advanced frontier of science, of the particle physics, the quantum physicists in the 20th century, they've concluded that our universe has ten dimensions, only four are directly measurable, three spatial dimensions, length, width, height, and time, and six are curled less than 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. And therefore, they're inferable only by indirect means. Now, what's interesting about that, the frontier of science has caught up to Nachmanides, what he learned by simply doing his homework in the text of Genesis 1. But four dimensions. We live in four dimensions, right? That's what Paul tells you in Ephesians 3. Breadth, length, depth, and height. And uh, we talked about that last time. Three spatial dimensions and time. Paul says so. Lists them there in Ephesians 3, verse 18. And through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And from this we talked a little bit last time about the nature of reality. We took a, 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 a simple atom, a hydrogen atom, nucleus and electron, 
Not to scale, of course. If we take the nucleus to scale and we take the atom to scale, we discover that the atom is 100,000 times as big as the, uh, the uh, neutron, or nucleus, I mean. And uh, that's just linearly. To get it volumetrically, you've got to take length, width, height. You've got to cube that. So it's 10 to the 15th. So what's interesting about that, as you try to grasp what does that mean, what is 10 to the 15th? The ratio of solid stuff to volume here is the same ratio, that's ten, one part in 10 to the 15, that's same ratio as one second would have to 30 million years. So if I say there's nothing here, I'm more correct than somebody who says that this is solid by a factor of that ratio, one part in 10 to the 15th, or one second to 30 million years. I mention that, though, because we begin to, part of the great discovery in modern science is that this is all a digital simulation. It's digital, and it's a simulation. We discover it's, it's everything's made up of indivisible quant units. If I take a line and break it in half, great. I take that half that's left, I can cut it in half. And you would think I would be able to do that forever, at least conceptually. It turns out not to be true. It turns out if you get down to 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, it no longer can be divided. Attempts to divide it will cause it to lose locality. It'll be everywhere in the universe at the same time. That's impossible. And that, that's, what, well, that's why Boltzmann committed suicide, because he, he appreciated what that really meant. At the limit, these things lose locality. So we discover, we discover then, there's a, it's called the Planck length in length, the Planck time, there's no t period of time smaller than 10 to the minus 43 seconds. All these things are made up of indivisible units. It's like a piano keyboard. You can't get tones between the keys. You pick your key, but you, 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 you can't get between. Well, the black keys are an exception, but when you put them together, the, it's a piano technically, in, in this sense, is digital, in that sense. And uh, so anyway, every, even time is a physical dimension, therefore even time is made up of Units that cannot be divided. That's interesting. So if we take, take the reach of man as a center here and talk about size, getting into bigness leads you to astronomy and astrophysics, and the great discovery of 20th century science is that the universe is finite in the macrocosm, the large side. If we go the other way, in smallness, that drives you into quantum physics and subatomic particles, and they also are made, they are also finite. They're not infinitely small. You can't get infinitely small. So we discover that we're bounded in a digital simulation and that, that the, its solidity is a function of electrical interaction between the molecules that make up our hand and the molecules of this platform or whatever else. It's interesting that uh, we take the total package. We now know that our physical reality is but a shadow of a larger reality. That's a phrase I drew out of Scientific American, June of 2005, in an article that came to that conclusion, that our universe is but a shadow of a larger reality. Well, that's what the Bible's been saying all along, and Hebrews 11.3 is examples of that. Then we go through a bunch of examples in there, Gideon, Barak, Samson, those are judges, and then a king and prophets, of examples of men of faith. And we want to touch on David's kingdom because we're going to talk more about that in the next couple of sessions. We need to understand the kingdom of David because God gave him an unconditional covenant. That's in 2 Samuel 7. We need to really understand that. And that covenant that his kingdom would be forever is confirmed by Gabriel to Mary in the New Testament. At Christmas, we always celebrate that, that her child is going to sit on the throne of David. 
James, when he officiates at the primary uh, council in Acts 15, uh, at the Council of Jerusalem, he quotes Amos 9.11, that very same thing, that God, once he gets his, the Gentile group pulled out, he's going to reestablish the tabernacle of David. And then there's the keys of the kingdom that are defined for us, not at Caesarea Philippi, but in Isaiah 22, verse 22. And they're linked to the church at Philadelphia, the unique promises to the church, out of the seven churches, Philadelphia has this allusion to whatever that is. So we're going to talk more about that in subsequent sessions. But the sum of the matter, just to wrap up, or warm up till we get to tonight's material, is the uh, admonition that's in Hebrews 6, where the writer says, that ye be not slothful, lazy. Remember my definition of tomorrow. Remember what tomorrow is? Tomorrow is when the slothful work and the fools repent. Right? When you go down to Newport Beach, there's a great place called the Crab Cooker, and they always say we have free crab tomorrow. Of course, tomorrow never comes, see, because it's always, it's only free tomorrow. <laughs> okay? Well, tomorrow is when the lazy work, and tomorrow is when the fools repent. Tomorrow is when you're going to get on that diet. You know, Satan loves tomorrow. He doesn't like the word today, but he loves tomorrow. Whatever you promise you tomorrow, he's secure in, because tomorrow never comes. Be ye not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience do what? Get saved, right? No. What does it say? Inherit the promises. Inherit the promises. If I sign, when I travel, if I sign in at a hotel, that gives me entrance and privilege to use a room. It doesn't give me the right to rearrange the furniture. Same thing if I invite you to my home. If I invite you in, allowing you to enter allows you to come into my home. Doesn't allow you to repaint or rearrange the furniture. No. There's a difference between entering and inheriting. And the passion all through this epistle is there is an inheritance for you that's been set aside for you, but you gain it by being faithful. If you're not faithful, you don't lose your, don't lose your inheritance. Uh, you don't lose your salvation, but you can lose your inheritance. Inheritance can be for forfeited. And that's really the background here. So now, okay, that's the review. We are in Hebrews chapter 12. And here's the conclusion. You have this interesting word, wherefore. In other words, what he's about to say hangs on what we've just said. That's why I took the trouble to review what we just said. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Who's he talking about? That whole list of saints that were profiled for you in the previous chapter. I didn't go through all those obviously again, but you get the idea. Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us... Notice the writer putting himself in that category. Let us lay aside every weight, all our excess baggage. Lay aside every weight. And the sin which doth so easily beset us. What sin is he talking about? The most critical sin of all, unbelief. And let us, there he is, he's again, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. This, obviously, this chapter follows chapter 11, where all those believers were summarized. Abraham and David and so on were seen as, they were, he, see, he profiles them as if they're contestants, striving to win a prize. And he's putting us in that same category. 
We are in a competition, not against each other, against the expectation that God would have us earn uh, the prize with. That run with patience the race that is set with us. The word there is agon in the, in the Greek. And that's uh, uh, what it really refers to is an assembly met to see the games. It refers thus to a contest for a prize at their games. It thus generically, any contest or struggle is called an agon in the Greek. That's where we get the word agonize and, some, and, and, and so on. How long is the race he's talking about? When did that race start? It started when you accepted Christ. You became justified. Terrific. And it goes until death. From the day of salvation until the day of death. That's the period of time we're focusing on. And I, I personally hold the view that most Christians that get to heaven are going to be disappointed. Because they're going to realize, it's going to come home to roost, the opportunities that they blew that their eternity is going to be determined by how they perform during this brief little period we call life. And that they'll look back, if they had just, if they shoulda, woulda, coulda, right? And that's, uh, there, won't be, there won't be tears because of sickness and those kinds of things. That's not that, not those problems. The problems will be, as we look back and realize, wow, what it might have been. Okay. Now, there are three participles in here. Seeing, that is the witnesses, and laying aside the baggage of Judaism. Mary, he's talking about Jewish believers here, laying aside the baggage. They're, they're threatened. They're, the, 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 the thing that they were fighting was they were thinking of going back to Judaism because they're tired of being persecuted as Christians. So they were entertaining the idea of going back because uh, they were getting, encountering a lot of problems. They're gonna, he says, seeing that we're encompassed by the witnesses, laying aside two things, the baggage of Judaism that they were still trying to, thinking of carrying, and the sin of apostasy. And that was back in chapter 10 where that focused on. And looking then, we're going to see in the next verse, picks up the third of the three participles, looking unto Jesus, keeping an eye on Him, looking unto Jesus. A pharao, they look to, to look away from all distractions, the word looking here in the Greek is very, see, it's Greek is very specific. Not just looking, but looking in the sense that you're ignoring distractions. You're focusing. You could almost more, focusing on uh, uh, Jesus would be another way to translate it. To whom? Jesus, the author and finisher of, uh, of our faith. And why? Because he is the perfect example of obedience and patient endurance. Anytime you have some, need some perspectives, you get it by focusing on Jesus Christ. The author and finisher, Teleosterson, is the one who carries it through completion. We st what he starts, he finishes. You know what's exciting about that word? When God, when God has started a good work in you, right? The very fact that you're here right now, listening to all this, means that God has started something in your life. You know what the good news about that is? What God starts, he finishes. He finishes. That's exciting. That's exciting. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against system. For consider here, the word consider, analogazonomai, which is the word from which analog comes from, analogy, if you will, means to think over, consider, ponder. Consider him. Think it over. Every once in a while, we need to stand back and think through 
what Christ went through for you and me. And I don't mean just the cross. That's the obvious capstone. Read Psalm 69 and look through there and hear the sobs of a small boy raised in Nazareth in which the drunkards make up songs about him down at the tavern because he's considered illegitimate. His mother, he's made an alien to his mother's children. What's all that talking about in Psalm 69? Section in there. You begin to realize those were not happy days. He and his mother, but he endured the stigma of being illegitimate for 30 years. Why? So that you and I would have clear title to be called a son of God. Wow. When you think of his suffering, it's 30 years, not three and a half. It's not just the overnight in Gethsemane and the cross. I'm not demeaning that. Don't misunderstand me. In fact, I would make the case that what he really suffered far beyond the physical things that are communicated to us. Anyway, as you think about that, the Word of God will keep you from being wearied. You ever get tired? We all will be. There's a, t there's a point going to be when studying the Bible and all this stuff gets to be kind of a drag. I hate to admit it, but there'll be times that you you'll be down. What's the remedy? Get in the Word. The, if you really get in the Word, that will keep you from being wearied as you begin to realize what has gone on before and what is going on right now on your behalf and what's coming on your behalf. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood. Now, it's referring primarily to these guys because in, within two years, his listeners are going to, the Jews are going to be killed. He's trying to tell them, don't go back to Judaism. That's over. Leviticus is over. The law is over. Don't go back to that. And you're going to get a surprise when we get to chapter 13, and I'll give you the postscript. Antagonize Zanomai. It's a to struggle, fight. The English word agony and antagonism comes out of that same Greek root. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and, and scourgeth every son he receiveth. The writer here is quoting, that sounds familiar to you, because that's Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. And he quotes that passage for, to make two points. That God disciplines those whom he loves. If your father really loves you, he'll take you to the woodshed when he should. If he doesn't do that, it's tragically something where he's shortchanging you. God disciplines those whom he loves. He won't bother if he doesn't love you. God proves that, uh, uh, excuse me, the writer here, I meant to say, proves that discipline, disciplinary action, is a sign of sonship. If you're not his son, he won't bother. He's, what he's trying to say is that passage implies that God is acting as a dutiful parent, loving you and seeing to it that you grow. He won't do that if you're not his son. That's really the point he's trying to make here. And the word my son there is huios in the Greek, which means also of an adult son. It's a sonship thing, not a child kind of thing. We think of a son being a child, and that's the only one. No, it goes a little further than that. But the progression that he's going to make here is from a lesser degree to a greater degree, even death. Because he's going to compare to a father and a son, but our father is even, if that's true of, of our, heavenly, our, our earthly father, it's even more true of our heavenly father. That's the point he's going to make here. God's children do suffer. Has anyone noticed that? 
Anyone have any doubts on that particular point, right? Okay. Well, the Scripture all through, and I just picked a few here, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. The Lord delivereth him out of all. Job, yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. John 16, 33, In the world ye shall have tribulation. Don't confuse that with the great tribulation. That's a specific period of time with some specific issues. No, in general, in the world, you'll have tribulation. Why? Who's the God of this world? And Satan promised it to Christ, and Christ promised it to those that follow Christ. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, Christ says. This is John's quoting Christ, of course. I have overcome the world. Praise God for that. Never lose sight of that. Never lose sight of that. Paul writes his final letter to Timothy, and he says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer prosecution. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's reality. Now, why? Why do Christians suffer? J. Vernon McGee lists seven reasons. Because of our own stupidity and our own sin. All right. All right. I'll subscribe to that. My hand is up. For taking a stand for truth and righteousness. I don't get persecuted enough for that. I don't do it enough for that. I suppose if I did it more, I would have more persecution. But that's a legitimate one. We suffer for sin in our lives. Is there some continuing sin in our life? That will bring down some, some trouble. For our past sins is another way of saying the same thing. In some cases, we will have persecution for some lofty purpose that God knows that hasn't revealed to us, at least not yet. And there's examples of that, but you can look at the book of Job as one example. Job never had the benefit of the conversation that opens the book, conversation of Satan and God. We as readers have that benefit. Job didn't. Tough stuff. Some get suffered for their faith, and some for discipline. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. <laughs>